Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Rich Schmitz, I'm here with Dave Page. We're at his home in Sherwood. It's August 17th, 2020. Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for coming. Uh, first question for you and the most important question for what we're doing. Uh, why wine? Um, the, you know, I was studying a lot of different things in college way back when. I'm from the Midwest. Wine was not part of my culture. And, uh, you know, but I, I was studying some scientific things. Um, you know, I did a little majored in computers for a while, I majored in graphic design for a while, I majored in genetics for a while, you know, just bouncing between science and uh, looking for something more creative. And uh, got a job in a wine shop, and it was the first thing I'd seen that made it seem almost impossible to separate the creative from the science. Uh, you know, you read wine books, and you can't get through one page without a, a serious mention of both. Uh, so it seemed really right up my alley in that regard. Like I, you know, I, I can totally warm up to this and um, worked in a wine shop for a while and, and immediately kind of realized one day that I was always going to think someone in the wine industry had a cooler job than I had unless I made wine. And uh, so Packed up, went to UC Davis. Uh, in the 80s, that seemed like the only place to go and actually study winemaking. Thankfully, that's not true anymore, but it was then. So when you got there, you were thinking at that point of production, you were thinking of creating, cre making wine. So tell me about kind of the process of, of learning how to make wine and what you learned at Davis. Well, Davis was a great background. You know, you, you learn the science, you learn a lot of why things work the way they work. And, but, you know, I think the main thing behind it, any science degree and the reason why there are people who do this who have degrees in, you know, other things like chemistry or whatever, and they're doing just fine. Uh, but a, a good science degree teaches you a way to have a filter for what's bullshit and what's not bullshit. And, and how to sort of spot that, how to spot that, oh, that particular statement sounds like there's no evidence behind it. So I'm not going to waste, you know, you, you only get so many years to do this job. I'm not going to waste a couple of years pursuing something that isn't, doesn't have any foundation. Mm -hmm. But Davis can't teach you how great things taste and, and, and why they taste great and how to make sure they're going to taste great. They, they can't do that part. Uh, that part is up to us, and I think when I was, at the time I was there, Davis was starting to get a reputation for just producing these winemaking robots that knew all the fundamentals, but, you know, that knew the chemistry, but didn't know anything else. But I think people weren't giving us credit for how much our life was going to continue shaping us after that. So you've got two people in Oregon at least, and I'm probably forgetting someone, that went to Davis same time I did. One of them was my good friend, Eric Homaker. And his wines, uh, while I, I very much love his wines, uh, but they're very different than mine. So we learn from the same people at the same time, but we've made different choices since then. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of 
lot more to learn about what style you like and how to achieve that style. So once you're at Davis, tell me about kind of your first step into the industry. Well, like a lot of people, I was taking harvest jobs while I was still there. Um, I Then I went and worked at Sterling Vineyards in Calistoga for several years. Um, had a chance to take a leave of absence from there and do a harvest in the Barossa Valley in Australia, which was a really great experience. And came back and ended up having an opportunity to work in at Jekyll in Monterey County. Um, so that's what brought me down to Monterey. But every step of the way, you know, you're just kind of trying to absorb something new and you're just trying to figure out. You, you tend to see things in this industry that you don't understand and sometimes things that even, you know, that surprise you in ways both good and bad. And then two years later, you realize why that worked so well. You know, that thing that guy was doing was actually pretty smart. And so in the early days when you're in this industry, you should really be almost nothing but a sponge. I'm just going to soak it up. I'm not going to pass judgment. I'm going to look for why that worked later on or didn't work. And so bouncing around a little bit in your early days kind of makes sense. You see a lot of things about what worked, what didn't work, and um, or what, what they're doing and what they're not doing. And then you taste their wines and kind of judge for yourself. What wines did you find yourself drawn to, or what style did you find yourself drawn to, kind of as you were learning wine and, and, and bouncing around harvest? Was there a certain varietal region style that spoke to you? I didn't, and I think this is partly because I come from came from this uh, retail, you know, that I'd worked retail for a couple of years, so I wasn't really thinking. You know, and when you work retail, you you carry wines from all over the place. You have all different styles of wine represented in your shop. And you would be a pretty crappy wine shop if all you really cared about was one kind of wine. So I kind of grew up thinking more, you know, I, I kind of came into the industry uh, liking everything and, and experiencing everything. I didn't really realize I was gravitating towards cooler climate varieties um, until I, you know, until later on when I was at Jekyll and I was starting to think of what my next move would be. And by then, I'd already come up to the Steamboat Pinot Noir Conference in Oregon a couple of times. And that's when I realized, boy, I'm, I really am only interested in jobs that are going to do Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, these you know, cool climate varieties like that. And I think the reason was probably just because of the elusiveness of it. You know, it's hard to put, it's, it's still, for me, after all these years, often hard to put my finger on what makes a really great Pinot Noir so great. Whereas, if you're talking about, I mean, it's, it's just easier for me with Cabernet to, to say why I like this one and not this one. Mm -hmm. And with Pinot Noir, it's still hard after all these years. And that to me is, is so fascinating. And I think that's what makes Pinot Noir fascinating to a lot of people. It's, you know, when you go to a great restaurant, one that, one that I really need to go back to again. It's not because I totally understood their food. It's because I didn't quite understand it. It's because there's something about that I still haven't wrapped my head around. 
So before we move forward, I want to back up for a second and ask you about your, Australia. Obviously, it's become pretty common now for people to do trips to New Zealand, Australia as upcoming winemakers. No, it wasn't as common uh, a little bit earlier on. So tell me about kind of how that came about and about your experiences in Australia. Um, I was in the Barossa Valley, so we were, we were doing a lot of Shiraz, uh, Cabernet, that kind of thing there. And at the time, there wasn't as strong of a connection. Certainly, you know, I've been in Oregon long enough, I don't really know what this looks like if you're in California or something. But certainly in Oregon, there's a very strong connection to New Zealand and parts of Australia, almost like there's a, you know, it's, there's almost like there's an unspoken deal between the two growing regions that we were gonna swap interns. And I think some of that comes from things like the Steamboat Pinot Noir Conference and IPNC, where some of their winemakers have come here and know us through that, and we know them through that. And so there's a, there's a lot of open communication about, are we gonna, you know, about, hey, I, I got a guy you should take on for harvest, you know? And so the, it's become much more global. Um, and again, I think a lot of that came from Oregon. There wasn't that community, that, that effort when I was in California you needed to make more of an effort to understand more about what's going on within your region or in other parts of California. The, uh, but up here, there's, that effort is part of our DNA. And, and, you know, so that's part of what makes it exciting. It's part of what got me up here in the first place. Well, let's talk about that. You've, you've, you've sort of discovered your cool climate varietals, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, are what kind of what's calling to you. So what's your next step at that point, and how do you eventually get to Oregon? Well, I took over the reins at this tiny little place in the San Lucia Highlands called Cloninger. Um, no one's ever heard of it. So if you're watching, don't crack your brain. Um, great place to learn. Um, really great vineyard that we were working with. But not, you know, it was tiny and kind of underfunded. So I could, I felt like it was great for me because I, I really got to try things. I really got to, and, and take responsibility for them, not just try them, but really take ownership. Um, and so I learned a lot about winemaking, but also a lot about, that was my first experience really representing what I'm doing to distributors, et cetera, um, the whole package. But as I said, it was, it was tiny and kind of underfunded. It wasn't gonna go, it wasn't gonna, keep going very well. So I was looking for what, you know, looking for a place that maybe was big enough to actually uh, believe in as having a future to be, I, that sounds harsh, but, um, and ended up after one of those trips to the Steamboat Pinot Conference in 2001, uh, talked to David Adelsheim and we had an, eight or nine hour conversation, and I started there a month later. Went home and packed up. As you got to Oregon, what were your sort of initial impressions of the industry? Obviously you had impressions from before, but now you're in Oregon. What are your first impressions of Oregon's wine industry? Well, my initial impression was pretty chaotic, but that wasn't because of Oregon. I mean, I literally started, my last day at my job at Cloninger was 9-11, and um, so I was, we were packing our 
truck to move in that immediate post 9-11 world. And I pulled into Adelsheim the first day that fruit arrived. So there was a lot of just weird chaos in the air. You know, it wasn't, there was nothing normal about it. So honestly, that's the context in which uh, uh, that whole first harvest happened. But I remember very quickly getting a feel for how well Oregon works together. And it just felt like it came together so easily and partly because it, people are collegial. You, you essentially join a college and, um, you know, when you come here. And that was great. I mean, I've been coming up and tasting with some of the people up here. So I was already aware that Oregon was the kind of place where people shared a lot and uh, of what they were doing and why they were doing it and would taste each other about it. Um, but seeing it in action, and especially seeing it in action in a year where I was going to need some of that help because I just hit the ground uh, during harvest, was amazing and really rewarding. And I knew by you know, within a couple of months that this was something that I had not seen elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I remember during my first harvest, and I'd really only been in Adelsheim for a couple of weeks, and I heard that uh, um, there was, you know, the Lemelson has this device that is referred to in the industry as the Starship Enterprise. You know, the, the uh, this big contraption where they have the the destemmer up on up on a platform that moves around, and they accidentally dropped their destemmer off the Starship Enterprise in 2001. And I heard this. I knew Thomas Batchelder at the time. He's now in Niagara, but he was the winemaker at Lemelson, and I knew Thomas. He was one of the people I did know before I moved here. And so through the grapevine, I learned about this at probably 10 or 11 in the morning, and. A little while later, it dawned on me that I remembered when looking around at Alzheimer's, I realized there was this old distemmer out back that, that we weren't using, that, uh, you know, that, that we no longer used there. And I called Thomas and told him, hey, I've got an extra distemmer if you need it to keep going. And by the time I called, someone else, I think it was uh, Dean, at a day, Dean Fisher at a day, had already brought him parts and fixed his distemmer. You know, it's like the idea that people actually will stand in line in order to help each other mm -hmm. uh, around here. You know, that's, that was pretty impressive. So you're kind of thrust right into the chaos, uh, first harvest at Adelsheim. Tell me about that, what memories from that harvest uh, from the winemaking side. What, what, what was it like kind of getting up to speed at a new facility right in the middle of, of, of the crash? Well, I've always... It, it was a good time to sort of practice what I had maybe preached a little bit before, which is um, try to respond to fruit, try to respond to what you're seeing and tasting, as opposed to bringing, don't bring your own bias into harvest, mm -hmm. because that's just going to get in the way of you actually seeing what's really going on. And you're not gonna you're not gonna actually appreciate what you should be doing if you're too busy evaluating everything as if it's the same batch of fruit you've used before. Mm -hmm. So, I think that 
that was really what got me through it. Um, there wasn't a lot of, I, I had an assistant winemaker there, but she hadn't actually worked harvest there before. So there was really not a lot of institutional knowledge. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, that may have been a strength, right? It, it really gave us an opportunity to just open up the, the possibilities of what we were going to do and just start from scratch and not, you know, it's kind of neat to, to say we don't have a playbook. And uh, it, was, it was definitely one of the more crazy harvests I've ever had, but looking back on it, it was exciting. So you've taken over at, at, a, at one of the more well-known and respected Oregon, Oregon labels and brands, and for a man like Dave Adelsheim, who obviously everyone, everyone uh, knows and respects. So tell me, what were the kind of expectations that you had of yourself, and maybe the expectations that were coming from Dave, David Adelsheim himself in terms of, were you, were you going to be allowed to change the styles much? Was there going to be kind of, was it going to be the same old, same old? What, like what was the expectation and what was kind of what, you're, what were you bringing to the table? I think the important thing that happened in my interview with David was that I opened for him three, diff three consecutive vintages of Pinot Noir that I'd made at Cloninger. And he tasted them and he liked all three and he could see some continuity amongst the three. And then I shared with him that all three of those came from different vineyards. Those were, you know, there wasn't any fruit continuity, mm -hmm. except that they were all Monterey County. That was it. And I think that really impressed him that there was something going on amongst those three that, that made sense. And I think that helped him gain some confidence that I could deal with fruit from all these different sources that I was going to see. Um, and whether that's why or not, but you know, we had conversations about style and we had conversations about what we liked. And we mainly just seemed to be kind of on the same page about that. We, you know, we, we both really liked Pinot Noirs that valued complexity over just how damn big it can be. And those were the days when people were still, there was a lot of people still like really trying to see just how big can we, can I turn Pinot into a Syrah? Mm -hmm. And um, because when we tasted wine together, we both kind of knew that we both felt the same way. So there was some trust building up already. David, and I don't, I don't think I'm saying anything he wouldn't say, you know, he, he never believed he was the winemaker. He had had winemakers there before. So he was pretty comfortable with the idea that, you know, he, he would definitely come into the lab and see what was going on and make his suggestions, but he was pretty comfortable that he probably wasn't the right person to make all of those decisions. So it, I'd say it was a really good working relationship right from the start. He could be a res he knew how to be a resource without being uh, second guessing, you know, without second guessing everything. And to me, that was wonderful. That was really valuable to have. And sometimes, by the way, you know, we talk about the, we talk about winemaking style a lot. We talk about more romantic notions about winemaking, but a lot of times that resource is actually on a much more prosaic level. Like what happens when something like this happens with the glycol chiller? You know, you need, you need someone who's been at that facility for a, for a few years, who's seen that kind of thing happen. Mm -hmm. And 
So a lot of times that was the kind of thing that really got us through. So I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned that uh, you had very similar ideas in terms of complexity over size at a time when that wasn't necessarily the, the, the going trend in, in Pinot Noir. So tell me about first wines you made at Adelsheim. Uh, where did they, did they feel like they fit? Did they feel like what you were going for? Or did you have to make adjustments going, that, for your next wines? You know, the old ones, um, I, the old ones were more fruit driven than most of the Oregon Pinots that I'd had up to that point. And, you know, they weren't, this wasn't California fruit driven, but it was very pretty, very delicious, mostly redder fruits. And they were really lovely. But to my California sensibility, anytime I'd ever made a Pinot Noir in California, that was all about pretty fruit very early on, those are the wines that tend to be, you know, what I would call shooting stars. They, they're, they're really gorgeous for a couple of years and then not so much. Mm -hmm. um, but it was really, it was a really great lesson for me in 01 because I think I even mentioned that to David Adelsheim that I kind of felt like maybe that vintage was going to be that way. And he said, no, you, give, them, give them at least 10 years, you know, or whatever. They're, they're still going to be here. And he turned out to be right. Uh, I haven't had no one for se in several years now, but I I'm sure I've had one within the last five or six years, and they were holding up great, even though I thought of them as these beautiful, maybe even slightly delicate, you know, fruit-driven wines in their youth. So it, it was really an interesting year to learn that, you know, to, interesting to see that, and it helped me going forward trust that these wines did have the structure. I didn't have, I don't have to force structure upon the wines from Oregon. They, you know, they have that. They have real classic, elegant tannic structure that doesn't have to be giant and in your face in order to hold up and maintain that elegance over time. Tell me about the, was there, was there a noticeable difference making, making Oregon wine versus making California wine? Were, the, were there challenges that came with that or, or other, or, or advantages? I think part of my confusion in how I should answer that is really because, to be honest, um, I was also maturing as a winemaker during that time, but the kind of, you know, in, in Monterey, Monterey wines, uh, particularly the San Jose Highlands where I was working, but, you know, well, those wines had structure, but going back to that time, you know, in the, in the 90s, and this might have been universal, not just in, in California, but in the, the 90s was a time where wines were getting praised for how rich they were. These are, wines were supposed to be opulent. And, um, I was starting to pick a little earlier and earlier because I was realizing that, you know, these wines were rich because of where, they, where, we're, where we are, because they were grown there. Mm -hmm. And I was going to get that no matter what. I didn't have to wait till November to, to harvest in order to make sure they were going to be rich. And I was picking sooner and sooner to, to retain more brightness, more acidity in the wines. And I thought, well, now I get best of both worlds. I get the brighter side and I get the richer side. And coming up here, 
I think that flipped a little bit uh, because what this fruit has up here, what we get here is brightness and structure. And so if anything, what I was thinking as I was trying to think about extraction or, or you know, winemaking techniques in general was not how to make sure that these rich wines had structure, but how to make sure these structural wines had richness. Um, so it kind of changed, you know, and that's where that technique or that, that practice of tasting and following what you're seeing as opposed to, as opposed to insisting that you already have a, a favorite technique that you always employ. You know, that's where that practice, I think, became very helpful was I made that switch because I was paying attention to the fruit, not because I consciously set out to make that switch. You talk about that as, as part of maturing as a winemaker. I'm curious about the, the timeline on that. How long does it take, did it take you in your career to feel confident responding to the fruit that way? Well, I know some people who I think have wrapped their heads around it faster than I did, but um, you know, I think if you come here and start out making wine in Oregon and this is the only style of wine you ever want to make, Maybe you'll wrap your head around it faster, but I was doing Cabernet, I was doing all kinds, you know, Syrah, I was doing all kinds of different things. And um, I don't think I really refined my scent, my, my approach, and my, my approach to both winemaking and my, my sense of style until I started to focus more and more on just the varieties I work on now. And, you know, and, and so in, I would say in 97, when I started at Cloninger, I really started a focus on cool climate winemaking, and I'll let you know when I'm done. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing about this. To me, and that's part of what cool climate varieties can do, is that they're, to me they're so intriguing, there's so much depth there, there's so much to learn. If I meet someone in Oregon who says they're done learning about how to make these wines, then they're, they're not gonna make it anywhere. You know, that's, there is too much to learn about growing and making these wines. And I'm not bored, I'm not gonna be bored, and I'm not gonna say that I've accomplished my goal. You mentioned growing in there, obviously a, a huge part of the process. Uh, tell me about taking over uh, Adelsheim and, and learning the sites, learning all that. You mentioned all the different sites you're getting from, about learning the different vineyards uh, and, and how to treat them. Well, at first you're going back to what I said before about anybody, what anybody should do in their first few years in the industry. You know, by then I'd been in the industry for a while, but I kind of went back to being a sponge, like you should be when you're new. Fortunately, they were in kind of a phase where they were growing and expanding and trying new things. So I had the opportunity to be a sponge without necessarily maintaining a lot of existing things. For example, the Elizabeth Reserve Program had existed before I got there. And sometimes it was essentially a single vineyard wine based on the old quarter mile lane vineyard. Um, other times they blended it a little bit but it was the time, it was when I got there that it really also coincidentally was turning into a program that was gonna consistently be a blended reserve. So I didn't have a template I had to wrap my head around. There wasn't, you know, there, we, we were allowed to create the template. Mm -hmm. 
for, for what that wine was going to be. And they had only, likewise, they had only bottled one or two single vineyard wines up until the time I got there. And within a few years, really, we were doing six or so. And a few years after that, we were doing eight or sometimes nine. You know, we'd, we really expanded our single vineyard program. So again, I didn't, I at least, I was, I was relieved of being under the pressure to somehow duplicate what had happened before. Mm -hmm. We got to create it from scratch. Mm -hmm. And that was helpful to me. And so we kind of all learned it together. And, uh, and that's part of what made that such a great opportunity. Um, it might have been helpful to them too, right? If you're about to expand and try a whole bunch of new different things, then maybe starting with, uh, st starting with some new people on the ground, new boots on the ground is actually a good way to do that too. I don't know. So that was sort of part of the known, as you were taking over, that was sort of part of the known charge was the expansion and, and some trying some different things and, and growth. It wasn't something that we really explicitly talked about that much, but it definitely turned out to be something that was going on a lot at the time. And, and I think that, I think if we'd sat down and said in 2001, where we were going to be five years later, um, we would have changed it three times by the time we got there. But I think part of it was because we were seeing it was working, right? If, if it wasn't working, would we have ever made eight different single vineyard wines? Probably not. But you know, we, the first couple single vineyard wines in my first few years became four single vineyard wines and it was working. And then, so then after a couple more years, it became a few more. And we didn't have a taste room in those days. Nowadays, of course, any winery without a taste room is almost weird, but in those days, a lot of wineries were just open on uh, Thanksgiving and, and Memorial Day, and that's, Adelsheim was no exception. And so if you don't have a tasting room, then having a, most wineries didn't have an expanded single vineyard program if they didn't have a tasting room. So those, a lot of that evolution went hand in hand. And it helped that during that time, I was also really getting a better and better handle on all of the different vineyards that Adelsheim had some of which were only planted around then or even after then, but, you know, were really coming into their own. So when you say the single vineyard program was, was successful, was it, at that point, distribution, restaurant, restaurant placements, that, or were, were consumers also, were you finding consumers also responding to it? Um, that's a good question, and, and kind of thank you for the opportunity to, to clarify what I mean by that. I think internally, our first definition of successful was we loved these wines, and they had a reason for being. We could tell the difference. So internally, someone would say, oh, you know, I, I just love that quarter mile, and someone else would say my favorite is Calkins Lane. You know, and, and that was part of the excitement of the program was they were all good and they were different. Um, they, uh, so that to me was what I actually meant by successful. They were commercially successful in the sense that we were starting, you know, in those years is when people were first really dipping their toe in the water of what it meant to have a wine club, what it meant to, you know, have direct-to-consumer uh, customers. And so that was working as well. 
But honestly, my definition of success had more to do with just that we were loving what was happening and we were excited about the results. If we weren't excited about the results, you know, I would say we went about it in the right way. The right way is you try something like that, you get great results and you say, well, we, we should like create a wine club around this because this is great. Mm -hmm. The wrong way to do it would be to say, well, we have to have a wine club. Let's make a whole bunch of weird wines so that we can you know, have one. But we did it in the right way. And, and I'm very proud of that too. And you know, that, that the wines existed before the wait, before figuring out how to sell them. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's important. It may not be what business uh, majors would suggest in this day and age. But to me, I think it helped make that lineup of wines what, what they became mm -hmm. and what they still are. So as you're, as you're kind of settling into the role, talk about other kind of uh, maybe milestones along the way at Alice, some other successful projects or, uh, or things along the way that kind of chart, you kind of marked your time as um, progressing. Well, I think that encompasses such a long period of time. And, you know, I was there for about 16 and a half years. Um, and plus add to that David's history, very long history in the industry. And, you know, I was working alongside of him. So our, you know, we, we had such a, a wide angle lens on now looking back on it. So it's hard to differentiate between what things are milestones for Adelsheim and what things are milestones for the Oregon industry. You know, I was describing our situation with, you know, creating a club around this, these wines we were starting to make. Well, that was, the industry was learning that same thing. That wasn't Adelsheim in a vacuum. And some of the other things, the, the realization that there was th this interesting distinction between different vineyards and often different areas within the valley that when I came there was still just colloquially referred to, you know, I mean, you knew where the Yola Hills were, but there was no definition. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so seeing the valley evolve into more distinctive sub AVAs, um, obviously Adelsheim and in particular David was a big part of that. Um, but again, I don't think we put the cart before the horse. We were already making the wines. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we had a Temperance Hill um, before that, before we could write Eola Amity Hills on that bottle. Mm -hmm. And we had a wine from Ribbon Ridge before Ribbon Ridge existed. So, the, you know, these wines, these wines were there, and of course plenty from the Shehila Mountains, because that's where we were based. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so these, these wines were already, the proof was already in the bottle. And to me, that again, that's important. You know, it's it's great to know that we're making these decisions because the because the wines are compelling, instead of let's go make an AVA and then figure out what we're going to do with it. You know. I'm sure there's a lot more history than that, but I'm not that I'm. There, there are a lot more things that went on j than just that, for sure. But, sure, sure. you know, meanwhile, I guess there were things like the live program, which I don't know when that actually first got started in Oregon, but 
I didn't really hear about it at first when I came here, and then we got involved in it, and you know, so it became a big part of that the growth of that program. Um, Oregon has always been, my impression, since long before I got here, Oregon was way more sustainable than where I've been working. You know, most of the vineyards I worked with in California, if they were considering going for a sustainability uh, title of any kind, whether it's organic or whatever, they were fairly upfront with me about that they were going to do it in order to sell their grapes. And I come up here and it seemed like everybody was already farming sustainable, but they couldn't be bothered with the paperwork. So finally, finally they became begrudgingly professional enough to actually do the paperwork and, and to demonstrate that we are actually a, a state that is a, an industry in this state that is almost built around sustainability. I think begrudgingly professional would be a great like title for the Oregon wine industry. <laughs> Sometimes. Sort of, we'll do it, but we're not going to like it. <laughs> uh, so as you, as you were uh, working at Adelsheim, tell me, what was, what was sort of special about Adelsheim to you? What, what, what was, whether it was terroir or, or philosophy or what was it about the, about the company that like, resonated with you as, as you were kind of growing into your role? Well, going to, going to work for David, I mean, obviously that's, that, that is both daunting and an opportunity. And I mean, that, that's the single most, and, and when you talk about Adelsheim, when you talk about the history of Adelsheim, I mean, obviously you're talking about David. There's no question. Um, and that was both the single biggest attraction and the thing that took at least, you know, a couple days to wrap my head around. Um, I was really lucky in, as I said before, there was things were in a time of flux anyway. So I didn't have to worry about maintaining this, this, you know, bastion of something in the way that it was already set. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, the, it, was, it was really an interesting uh, situation, almost an oxymoron, where you're, you're going to one of the most established icons of the area, and yet they've, right about the same time, we, we threw out the, the rule book. And, that's a, you know, what a unique combination of, of, of things to be working on. Mm -hmm. So, uh, like I said, I already knew some people up here, so I knew, I knew we could make this work. And, I, you know, I knew that, that this community was serious about making it work. Not just Adelsheim and the people who work at Adelsheim, but the community, you know, the, the larger community was committed to making this all work. But, um, I already lost my thread of the question. <laughs> That's okay. You actually brought up something interesting. That, uh, you talked about the, uh, working working for David or working for Alzheim as being kind of the, the biggest the biggest challenge and 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 and, uh, and success of that. Uh, tell me about the pressure of of, of that. Is, was that something you felt uh, internally, externally, as you were as you were working there? The pressure of Adelsheim? Um I might not have said this if you'd asked me then, because I'm sure I was feeling the pressure then. But certainly with the benefit of the years and the hindsight, I would say David was actually doing a lot to lessen that pressure, to make sure, you know, I, I knew 
even though he was certainly willing to make suggestions, um, but I knew that he knew that he was not Adelsheim's winemaker. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of winery owners who wouldn't have pulled that off. <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have made that so clear. Let's just say that. And uh, um, so that made it a lot easier to really work on what we're doing with this stuff. You know, what are, how are we going to make the best wine possible? And it would have been harder to answer that question had I been serving what I would, I would have called two masters. One, one, you know, both my internal compass and someone else. But again, because we agreed on wine, you know, we weren't, there was never any disagreement there about what kind of wine Adelsheim wanted to make. And because it was the same kind of wine I wanted to make, that was never a problem. And that is an amazingly, uh, that makes everything easier mm -hmm. from then on. So no, in hindsight, I really don't remember a lot of stress about that. Not as much as you can, not as much as you would think. Mm -hmm. It was certainly an honor, though, I'll say that. And it does, you know, and there are times where you are aware that you're on a bigger stage mm -hmm. because you went to a place like that. Certainly coming from a place that, as I said at the outset of this interview, no one's ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. What about the other, the other parts of, of the job of the winemaker? Obviously, you're, you're growing, so you have, you have staff, you're hiring and training, you're selling wine, you're doing all the other parts of it. Talking about kind of growing into that, those parts as well. I, I know it's not, selling wine is not usually people's favorite part of the job, so I'm curious about sort of your role in that. To me, it comes from, I've, I feel very strongly about why we do things the way we do in the winery and, and why we do things the way we do in the vineyard. And when you feel that way, you can't help but want to help communicate it. And so going out and sharing that message, I mean, that's, I don't know how that could be separated from what we do because it's so important, especially when you're talking about things that are, you know, that are fairly subtle. Um, this isn't, again, this isn't Cabernet. And uh, I know people who watch this who make Cabernet for a living are, are throwing things at the screen right now. But, you know, to me, because this is more subtle, it bears more explanation. Mm -hmm. Not everything about this is immediately obvious to anybody who ever takes a sip and why it matters, why that's important to me, why, why the things we do is important to me, and, and the results that are in the bottle um, that reflects all those decisions that we make and all those philosoph the philosophy we have and the region we grow in. And if you care that much about it, then uh, how would you not want to help communicate that? And that's the way I look at it. If I thought of it as sales, I would, that thought, I, I'm not a sales guy, right? And, and I, that would be cringe-inducing to me to think, oh, I'm going on a sales trip. Mm -hmm. But to think that I'm going and doing, you know, almost like, you know, mission work, <laughs> that, that feels natural. 
spreading the gospel. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Spreading the gospel. And just, you know, uh, I think that people are used to that there's a duality that is almost also an oxymoron of that I think what's really going on with wines like these, especially from a region like the Willamette Valley that can pull this off at a very high level, is elusive, but why it's delicious isn't. Why, why these wines are so good isn't elusive. How it got there is very complicated, but the fact that it's really freaking delicious is, doesn't have to be complicated. And showing people both sides of that is, is it's good to see the light bulb go off in their head that there is all this stuff behind it if I want to take that graduate level course and it's also killer, <laughs> you know, if I don't want to take that graduate level course. And you don't have to pass a test to serve this wine to, to customers or to guests, you know. If you want to learn more, we're here for you. We've talked to people, we've interviewed people in the industry who, who have worked with you at one time or another at Adelsheim or elsewhere and kind of look at you as a mentor. I'm, I'm curious about... That's a very large number of people, <laughs> by the large. way, over the years. <laughs> I'm curious about that. You played a big role in, in starting, starting and, and sort of sustaining careers along the way. Uh, Tell me about sort of what you try to impart to people who work for you, what you look for when you're hiring people and what you hope they take away as they go on to their next thing. Um, the first part would be harder to answer, what I look for when I hire people, because what you see in people is different for different people. You know, when I think about when um, when I hired Eric Kramer, what I saw in him was not the same as what we both saw in, when we hired Gina Hennon, you know, and, uh, and so what would be the common thread? I don't, I'd have to think about that longer, to be honest. Um, but it's just, while they, the, while they weren't the same people, and yet they both had something about them that wanted to learn everything about this industry and wanted to really be part of figuring out how to do such a great job and, and how to be somehow both confident and open-minded at the same time. And really, really radical open-mindedness can sound like you lack confidence. But um, I don't, I, I do believe those two can, can coexist. And, Finding people who somehow also believe that, even if everything else about them isn't, you know, is different. Uh, I think that's a big part of it. Um, as far as work, have, you know, having worked with a lot of people in this industry and uh, seeing them go on to different places, um, I think that it's rewarding, but it's also giving back. And that's part of coming here and working for one of the icons of the industry. And you, you immediately are bathed in the history of this place. And the history of this place is that we share information, we help each other, we, we are all collectively the reason why the Willamette Valley has come so far in what in wine terms is really still a fairly short period of time. 
And if you don't buy into that sense that we are collectively making everything better, then none of us are really going to get as far. And so I think that that, you know, you can't go to work at some place like Adelsheim. And, and, and by the way, that's not unique. I mean, uh, my good friend Louisa Ponzi has certainly mentored plenty of winemakers around, and, and there are plenty of other examples of that. Um, but you've got, you have a responsibility here, I think, to make sure that you do appreciate and understand how important that history is our shared history and not my history or David Adelsheim's history or Louisa Ponzi's history, right, or, or something like that. And, and that's, how, that's why we're all here. That's why this all happened. So in that sense, that, honestly, that, that's just returning the favor. We've heard about uh, one of the things specifically about Adelstein that's always intrigued me is about the sort of the harvest process with the interns and sort of being involved at every level of the, of the winemaking decision process or at least be having a say in more than other internship uh, places have. So I'm curious about if that was something that, w that you brought to the table or something you were excited to have as part of the program there and sort of why, why the process is what it is when it comes to like, bringing interns in and then having them be that uh, involved. I, I used to tell David about, you know, David and I had had a few conversations about this, and I, I said that in my mind, Adelsheim was becoming, as it grew, especially um, what I was calling a teaching winery, and that in the sense that there are hospitals that are just hospitals, but there are also hospitals that are teaching hospitals, where they are specifically attached to a university or whatever. And, and I used that analogy, and uh, um, we had conversations about that, and that's and we really embraced that idea, you know. Um, and so, I definitely, while I can be hard-headed sometimes, especially in the middle of harvest when there's a lot of work to do, so now may not be the right time to completely throw a curveball at us, but. We always tried to remember that we were a teaching winery, and as such, occasionally it meant saying yes to someone if they wanted to try something. Mm -hmm. And whether you believed in it or not, we had the luxury of, you know, we, we were going to have 150 different Pinot Noir fermenters in any given year, and I can spare one to someone's idea, you know. Um, but we also did it very experimentally, right? It wasn't just a wild hair, it was like, well, if we're going to try that, we're going to try a fermenter right next to it, same grapes, where we don't do it that way. And that, you know, that's the, the science nerd background of it, is let's actually learn something from this, not just throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. And so, you know, that way you can, you can kind of try everybody's idea and not be, not be close-minded about it, but at the same time, confirm what you're doing, confirm it with an actual experiment and see, you know, did it teach me something surprising or was that going to happen anyway from that batch of fruit? Um, no, it's, it was always exciting and it was a big part of, I think it was a big part of why we came so far. Uh, certainly just being an adult time now, not, not in a larger sense, you know, how do you, 
you end up coming up with a program that has that many wines that all reflect their place. Well, because each and every time, you know, if you're, if, if this particular single vineyard wine is going to be different from that one, then you really have to appreciate what's different about those vineyards and you're going to have to try things. You're going to have to do some experiments. What winemaking techniques are special for here versus here? You know, to me, for a lot of people in the first 10 years or so of their career and, and sometimes even longer, they're hung up on, there's a technique they discovered that they love and they use that technique. The more mature sense of how to look at that is all these different techniques, we're supposed to know well enough that we understand them, but we're supposed to pull them out as needed when they, when they suit this batch of fruit, when they suit this vineyard, then we pull that that out. And that to me is how you end up really learning how to make the best wine from any vineyard is to, is to have that kind of open-minded but informed approach and you know how to combine those two. So tell me as you were, as you were leaving Adelsheim, tell me about in your mind, what the biggest changes were at Adelsheim from when you started to when you finished? What were the what were the biggest differences uh, that you noticed uh, from in, the, in your time there? Well, mainly, like I said, they'd evolved to such a, you know, the, the the biggest single difference between the Adelsheim day I left and Adelsheim the day I arrived was just that expansion of all of those different kinds of wines that we were making and um, how that went hand in hand with the evolution both at Adelsheim specifically but in the valley in a larger sense to a lot of people coming here and seeking out those wines what I was calling earlier the graduate level course if you want to take it you know seeking out that that specificity of I want to learn more about all your wines I don't just want to not just the wine that I can get at my local store. And that's been, well, that's been part of my career that I could talk about personally, but really it's, it's the big picture of what's going on here for the last 15, 20 years. So tell me about starting your own label. Well, I can't say I set out, I, I can't say that I always knew I was going to do it, that I set out to do that. If I did, it wouldn't have taken me till I was in my 50s. Um, but, you know, at some point, I, I will always have been proud of what I did at Adelson. And I'm proud of Adelson. I'm still proud of Adelson. In fact, one of the things I'm most proud of is that the team there was such a great team that with only one exception, they're actually all still there. Unless there's news I don't know about. But, um, you know, and, and that was something that I specifically wanted to happen when I left, was make sure that that, that was going to be able to be in place. And because I wouldn't have been proud to leave had that led to anything chaotic. Um, but I still go there and think this, this is still great. You know, and so, with that confidence, with that comfort, um, I also was realizing that, you know, I was getting into my 50s and it was, I, I was either going to try something new or not. 
And um, so it was kind of uh, fish or cut bait, as my dad would have said, you know. And, uh, and we talked about it, my wife and I talked about it, and decided to, to go ahead and give this a shot. Been, I was toying with the idea for quite a while and finally realized that I was never really going to put a business plan together and do the work that it took to make this happen unless I just left Adelsheim first. So I really didn't have all this stuff in place the day I left Adelsheim. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting. That was, you know, I knew the timing was right for them, and that was important to me for Adelsheim. But in terms of myself, it, it felt like I just jumped off the diving board and then checked to see if there was water in the pool. And um, so it, it, I would say 2018 was one of the weirder years in my life. And that's really saying something, considering right now we're in the middle of 2020, which is the weirdest year of anybody's life. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we spent a lot of that year trying to find partners and trying to, because I, you know, it, I'm not, at this stage of the game, I'm not going to start a winery and build it up from scratch the slow way that takes 15 years. You know, I needed partners to say, okay, let's, let's, Let's grow a little bit faster. And also, I had, by then, contacts in the distribution world, et cetera, which meant I could probably find places to sell this wine faster than I could have had I tried this in my 30s. Mm -hmm. And so that, that meant we could hope to grow a little quicker. And I think that was turning out to be true uh, when COVID hit. So now, of course, distributors don't function for brands like us the way they used to. Um, that's not their fault, by the way. That's just because wine is pretty much only really being sold at Fred Meyer. And um, that's the nature of the world right now. But um, it is why we tried to launch the brand in a, in a way that was supposed to become widely distributed fairly quickly. And we're eventually gonna, we're gonna be building a winery and a tasting room, but that wasn't the, that actually wasn't the first step. And the typical mom-pop approach, had we been doing this when we were in our 20s or 30s, would have been, we would have converted some barn into a makeshift tasting room, and we would have been making 200 cases per year of wine until we sold, until we realized we were selling out fast. So now it's time to make 400 cases and then 800 cases, et cetera. Um, but when you have the years in the industry and you have the contacts and, and you know, other than that, and that kind of thing, then it, it, I think it makes sense to have a different approach. And so our growth is meant to be a little quicker than that and our, our reach in, through distribution was meant to be a little more expansive than that, all of which COVID has sort of put on the shelf for another year, but doesn't mean it's wrong. So tell me about your kind of initial plan then with, with David Page Wines. Uh, you mentioned kind of fast growth and, and rapid distribution. What were you going for with the wines themselves? Are, are they different than wines you're making before, or is it a continuation of the, of the same style? Um, I don't know that it 
my style was meant to be any different. Um, my winemaking approach isn't necessarily meant to be any different. It's an opportunity to learn some different vineyards. It's an opportunity to maybe push myself out of my comfort zone. And, and so I might try something a little differently than I would have at Adelsheim just by virtue of being pushed out of my comfort zone. And, uh, and that's, as long as you can, as long as you don't go down a rabbit hole, that's probably a good thing. Plus, we ended up with our partners buying a vineyard in the Eola Amity Hills. And so now I've got a piece of ground that I haven't worked with before that is now our, our main estate uh, source of fruit. And so it's an opportunity to really do a deep dive into one site. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that's something that we're really still just in the process of getting going on. We didn't own it in 2018. So we bottled a small amount of wine from it in 2018 because we bought some fruit from it. But we didn't own it then. So that we didn't really, we were just dipping our toe in at the time. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this year is going to be the first year where we're really going to be almost completely from that site. So that's an exciting phase to look at and to try to explore a vineyard on an even deeper level, I think, than I'd ever explored any of the vineyards at Adelsheim in terms of, you know, not just what can this vineyard do, but exactly why is this block different than this block, or maybe the top of the block versus the bottom of the block. You know, getting, getting just a little more granular and trying to really learn. And I'd made wines from the Eola Amity Hills before, of course. Uh, you know, we'd, I'd gotten fruit from several vineyards over the years in Eola Amity, most notably Zenith and Temperance Hill. Um, but again, just really exploring it more thoroughly and as a grower also now and, and really looking into what are the things we can do that, that make even just a small change. Mm -hmm. And so that's exciting. Um, I don't know that anybody would taste the wines we're doing now and say, boy, he's really done a 180 from what I know him to be nor would they necessarily say this tastes just like what I, you know, the wines I knew him to make. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think either one should be true, right? I'm, I'm not here to refute any of my history or any of my career. Um, uh, you know, I, I absolutely embrace that. I completely embrace that people might remember me from Adelsheim or, or frankly earlier if they're, if they're old enough. And, uh, you know, and, and then we can talk about the, the differences and the, and the similarities. Let's talk about the vineyard. Um, why the site? What, what spoke to you about the vineyard site and what do you think of it so far? Um, to me, when you st different vineyard sites are, what makes one site great and what makes another site great, you know, there's no single definition mm -hmm. of, of what a, what a great site is, but I, I can tell you that pulling up to it and you just had this sort of um, transverse sort of ridge, this rocky jory ridge poking out to the east from the 
Amity Hills, and and it just looks like a great place to ha to have a special a site that can have its own personality, a site that could grow great grapes. You know, you see it's kind of these thin rocky soils where even 20 year old vines that ought to be in the prime of their life are, are you know, they're struggling just a little bit. And, um, and it seems a little different than you look around at some of the, uh, at the other places where people are growing and it's just different enough. You think, okay, this could be a really unique quality that comes out of here. Um, and, uh, and that's really, Everything I just said is is a gut feel. There is no. I've seen I've seen a lot of soil pits in a lot of vineyards, and I can tell you that they all look different, even though several of them are great vineyards. So it kind of leaves me curious about the soil, wanting to see a soil pit, but understanding that you can dig that soil pit and it's not going to prove to me whether or not that vineyard site is awesome. It's. It, you know, it, it's that's more of, a, of an explanation, a partial explanation of why your vineyard performs the way it does. But again, I've been in a lot of soil pits and they don't prove to me whether or not that vineyard is one of your favorites or just an, another good vineyard. What are your initial takeaways from yours? And you, and you mentioned changes you can make to make a... Decisions you can make to make a small change in the grapes. What have you started kind of on that process? Just looking at, I mean, I don't have, because I don't have a very long history with that vineyard, I frankly don't necessarily know if some of the things I'm doing represent a, a dramatic shift, to be honest. Um, just, like it, just like it was in 2001 at Adelsheim, it was more of a clean slate kind of time than, than, a, than a here's the history and let's decide whether or not to keep it. Um, and, but. Just looking at anything from what's the right amount of leaf pulling to uh, it is a, a rocky enough site with thin enough soil that we're that we will most years probably be doing at least some irrigation. What's the right amount of that? Um, there's issues of you know how much fruit should we carry and does one block can one block handle carrying more fruit than another block? Um, are we, when you look at the wine as it develops in the fermenter, what's the, what's the difference in the tannins between the top and the bottom of the vineyard? And how can we turn around and say, well, what, what would we be doing different in growing? Whether it's leaf removal, crop level, cover crop, etc. What What things can we do different if we think that there's a, you know, a difference in tannins that we want to explore further. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just, there's a lot of subtle things. There isn't a giant, no one's going to look at that site and say, oh, you know what you should do? Scott Henry. You know, I mean, there's no giant thing that is going to utterly change that site. It's more of this, this incremental, let's look at, let's look at what a, what a cover crop every other row does, or we'll, let's look at what a little more leaf pulling does. Let's look at, you know, maybe maybe we should carry a quarter ton or a half ton less on that particular site. On that particular site, we have some Chardonnay grafted into there. We now have an acre and a third of Chardonnay. So a big question going forward might be: 
is where should more Chardonnay go? Because we'd probably like to put more Chardonnay in. But should we just expand where it's at? We love what it's doing. But on the other hand, maybe it'd be fun to have to check it out over or up on the top of the vineyard, up on the top of the slope. How would it look there? So these are questions as we evolve the vineyard going forward. Do we like the clonal mix that's there? Would we like to just in introduce a bigger variety of clones? Um, maybe even other rootstocks. How would you describe its personality so far from what, you, what you've been able to gather in terms of the wines themselves? It's interesting. In some ways, it, well, it doesn't necessarily remind me of Temperance Hill, but some of the things I saw at Temperance Hill I'm seeing here where they have both a fruit-driven side that often comes out more over time, um, but also this dark earth. It can also be kind of black pepper, even meat juices, you know, these really, this slightly dark gamey side that is very exciting and very unique, I think, to that area. Uh, although I'm not, I'm certainly not right next to Temperance Hill by any stretch. But, um, and, and the same batch of wine can evolve from one to the other. Typically starts out more of the black pepper, dark earth and those kinds of things and then evolves towards being a little more fruit driven. And the oldest wine I have from that site that I made was 2018. So it's not as if I can tell you the, the end of this story. But those are the kind of things I'm looking at and watching. And whether I want to sort of go further down one road or the other in, in winemaking techniques, I'm not a believer that my technique should determine the wine. Um, I'm supposed to pay attention to what's happening in the vineyard and employ whatever techniques seem to work with what the vineyard already wants to do. So if, if there's something structural that a little bit of whole cluster will bring out just perfectly, then great, do that. If there's something that really comes together when I leave it in the fermenter on the skins longer than I normally do, then do that. But don't set out to say, I'm going to make a structural wine, therefore I'm going to do this and this and this. And um, I mean, a lot of that com comes from, goes back all the way to Cloninger, but through learning about all those vineyards at Adelsheim. And but, uh, but now still applying that, even though I'm mostly going to be working on one site for a little while. I mean, we still, I, I still like getting fruit from some other vineyards, but even though the majority of my fruit's just gonna be from one site, but still applying that same thing, but on, a, on this more granular level, like, you know, what, is there a different kind of wine that's, that's the right thing to happen to block one up on top that is different than the pomard down towards the bottom? You know, is, is there, what, what techniques will bring out something special? And the definition of what that something special might be will change, depending on what happens. But, um, again, I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm trying to steer towards the destination that the grapes seem to be choosing, if that makes, if, if that's not too lofty. <laughs> no, I mean, that makes sense. I, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm curious, um, initial response to your wines, how, 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 they, how they have done as you've taken them out into the world, and how it sort of feels to have your name on the bottle after all these years? 
Um, the initial response has been excellent, but it's been a weird year to try to, you know, as far as, uh, as in fact, the way you put it was take them out into the world. Well, there's not a lot of taking anything out into the world right now. Uh, you know, um, I realize someone might watch this video years from now and, and need the reminder of what we're doing here in 2020. But uh, this isn't, I don't have the answer to that that I was hoping to have had by now, let's put it that way. But when people do taste them, I've had great response and I'm very, uh, it's been very rewarding. We only just recently started sending out to any publications or anything, so we haven't seen a lot of that yet. Um, but I'm, I've been very gratified by what we've seen so far. In terms of having my own name on the bottle, I can tell you that amongst uh, my wife and I and our partners, um, I pushed several other names first. And <laughs> this was... <laughs> This was by no means a done deal. And when it was just going to be my name, it was just going to be Paige. But even that was, uh, uh, we, were, we were told that that might not fly because someone had, had uh, trademarked something somewhat similar. Mm -hmm. So, but that if I put the first name in there also, that it wouldn't be so easily fought. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this, no, in no way, shape, or form did I leave Adelsheim so that I could put my name on a bottle of wine. That is not what this was ever about. Um, but, I mean, it does, I guess it focuses the mind a little to know that you're not going to hide. <laughs> um, and, and I do, I'm very comfortable standing behind the wine, so that's, you know, as, as I always did at other places I've worked. So that, part's, that part isn't new to me. I never felt like I wasn't standing behind the wines at any place I've ever, ever made wine. Does it change your reaction at all to people's feedback? Do you take it more personally? Um, no. I guess, you know, mainly, I mean, I hate to have all these answers, you know, so many of these answers circle back to, to coronavirus, but, you know, to be honest, if I take it as a bigger deal, if I, if there, if I feel like the, the feedback from any one customer or any distributor or any magazine is even more important than normal, it's mainly because we get so few opportunities now to interact with people at all that... You know, if I talk to a distributor this month, because most distributors aren't even returning phone calls to wineries who want them to carry their wine, if I talk to one guy this month, it's going to feel like the most important phone call the whole month. It shouldn't feel that way, but that's the year we're in. So that really is the dominant uh, thought in my head when you ask that question and why, why it does feel so critical. It's just because you don't get a lot of trips to the plate. We've obviously talked about it quite a bit, so we'll talk about it some more. The, the, the pandemic, obviously, we're still dealing with now and <laughs> obviously uh, stunting, stunting your, your ambitions here for the moment. So tell me about uh, how, how else it's affected kind of your wine life and how it affects kind of your vision of the future for your own brand and maybe for the industry at large. I think the main thing, what we've decided um, 
amongst my partners and I was that everybody's going to be dealing with this differently, right? If you're, you know, I suppose if I was at a larger winery that had wines that were priced in a way that they could be in Fred Meyer and Safeway, I would probably be thinking, well, I better put more wine into that because that's what's selling now. Uh, we didn't set out with a wine in that price point and we didn't set out with a huge distribution network. So that wasn't really part of our plan. And I suppose if I were a small winery that doesn't have wineries in that wines in that price point, um, and that, his, but that has just started doing more out of a tasting room, then I'd be really shifting hard to how do I maximize those customers? How do I make sure that customers know, A, are we still here? And B, if we're not, you can still reach us, you know, through social media or whatever. Um, I, I'm a bit of a one-man band, so I'm doing what I can for social media and all that kind of stuff, but but there's a, you know, there's a limit to how, how many balls I can juggle. But it turns out we are so new that we do have one key thing we can do that a lot of those other wineries can't. And that is we can try to essentially stop spending money and just say, hey, you know that whole growth plan? Let's draw a line through, one, through, through it, you know? And uh, um, so, while we're obviously going to bottle what we intended to bottle in 2019, it's too late for that, but you know, we're in a position to just simply make a little less wine next year and let the whole growth curve kind of slow down. And we don't own our own winery yet. We're talking about building one, but we don't own one yet. So we don't have, we have neither the bills nor the staff mm -hmm. uh, associated with that. And so we can kind of chill out. And as long as we're, all happy about looking around and saying, look, we understand why this happened. You know, it's nobody's fault. Then we can just sort of make less wine than we, than we thought we were gonna and slow things down a little bit. And that way we will still be here when things really open back up for good, whenever that'll be. Uh, whereas if we pretended somehow we were gonna fight through it, even though we don't obviously have a strategy for that, uh, or the infrastructure for it, then we probably would be just setting ourselves up for a, a bigger failure, right? Setting ourselves up for for spending a lot more money and, and building up more inventory than is appropriate. So it, does, it is good. Uh, it, there's, um, it, it is a silver lining to be so new and so small that you can just back up and say, hmm, I, don't ha I don't have to do this right this second. And we're in it for the long haul, you know. If we let, we, we can let um, COVID slow us down for a year. Uh, actually, it's not our choice. It's not about us letting that happen, is it? You know, we can, we can accept the fact that that's happening. And because we're in this for the long haul, our, our sights are set on, on 10 or more years from now. And, uh, you know, we don't, we don't have to agonize over whether or not we're hitting the target we set for the end of 2020 or the end of 2021. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've talked a little bit about your sort of future plans with, the, with the, the brand. I'm curious, as you look into that 10 plus years into the future, what do you kind of hope to, where do you hope to be at that point? 
Well, obviously, I mean, we're just starting this. So if I plan on being any place other than at Page Wines in five or 10 years, I'd be, I'd be nuts. But um, we're, we would love to be a small, a, a successful small winery someday. Right now, I don't even think we qualify as small. Um, I think that there's a, there's a natural size you see around the valley when you ask around. Uh, a lot of people seem to be able to sell, even wineries that aren't that well known are, are often able to sell 2,000 cases from a tasting room. Um, the more successful ones are doing three, maybe even four. But when, when one of the most successful taste rooms in the, you know, when a very successful taste room in the valley is only doing twice what, what a, a fairly unknown brand is doing, you realize there's a range there that is normal that people fall in. And expecting to not exist in that range is, uh, you know, you need a good reason why you expect to be so successful that you're going to burst through a glass ceiling that other people aren't. Mm -hmm. I think that if you're making five, six, maybe 7,000 cases of wine, you have half of that for the broad market distribution so that people can find your wine without coming to your tasting room. It's not my goal to be so exclusive that literally you don't know who we are. You know, I want you to see our wine occasionally at restaurants in, in Portland and New York for that matter, or Charleston, South Carolina, right? I want you to see the wine out there. Um, and, but we obviously hope to have a customer base right at the winery. And that's a fairly comfortable size. If you look around at wineries that have grown significantly above that, you kind of need, then that's a different kind of glass ceiling. You kind of need a, a, a GM or a national sales manager, or you, know, you need some key people to help push through that. And basically all we really talked about is that we'd get to that first plateau and look around and then decide what's next. When it comes to designing winery tasting room, do you have something in mind that you, that you uh, a certain type of winery, certain size, certain, certain layout that you kind of have in mind? We actually talked about this. Um, my partners don't live in state. But when we're all here at once, we, we went around, I, I scheduled a few days of touring around and tasting. And what, they, what we all really liked was when we we're at a place that felt like we went to a winery and we tasted wine at a winery. It didn't have to be with the winemaker, but, you know, um, something that, that had that sort of organic feel to it. Mm -hmm. and. So, and that's what we're doing. We're building a fairly small winery and a fairly small tasting room. And they're, they're completely connected, so much so that we're designing it so that if production needs to expand, it'll just take over the tasting room. And, uh, or if the tasting room needs to expand, it can, you know, they can expand into each other. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, that just sort of sense that if there's anything I want to communicate to people about my winemaking and the wines, it's that we are really here to explore this great region and as a subset of that, this particular great vineyard and trying to show you 
not through my ego, but through you know whatever shepherding I can do, try to show you what I think is the most special thing that can happen mm -hmm. in that spot mm -hmm. and in this region. And to me, adding glamour to that doesn't convey that message at all. And I think that to circle back to the whole COVID issue we keep touching on, I'm, I'm also guessing that if there's anything that comes out of this is that people might come out of this even uh, like with just a little less fascination about novelty and let's say, okay, let's, I want to see something real. I want to see something excellent and authentic. And, you know, I, I think that that's exactly what I'm trying to convey and what we're going to try to convey with the whole experience is we just want you to know you came to a winery where people give a shit and this is what we're going to show you. No, I mean, I, that is the most important thing, right? I mean, I don't want to go to a restaurant and be impressed by some, you know, some spiraling foam of, of whatever anymore. I want a really good burger. <laughs> and, or, I mean, it, it can be fancier than that, but you know what I mean? I want quality. And, and I, want, I want someone to really nail it. And um, I don't have to learn something brand new about what you can and cannot do with a potato, uh, necessarily, <laughs> you know, with the, by adding liquid nitrogen or something. And I think that that's, I'm, I'm ready for that whole trend to be over. I'm, I'm you know, my, I, would, I would like to design a logo that just says Page Wines, no hipsters. <laughs> <laughs> More steak by sizzle. Uh, yes, exactly. Right. If you come to our winery, do not ask for the pet nap. Um, just don't. <laughs> I know that in addition to your own label, you're also making wine for some other other brands around. So I'm curious about your work as a, as a kind of a custom winemaker and how that work, how your how your wines that you make for others differ from the wines you make for yourself. I'm not really. I haven't really done that much of that, and, and it hasn't been a huge part of what we do. I think once we actually open our winery, it'd be easier to really sort of hang that shingle out, so to speak. But uh, yeah, since I know you've already spoken with him, I, I've been, I, I will share that I've been working with Luke and Emily at Gemini, and, uh, for, for example. And um, I don't really have to change my winemaking approach because it's their vineyard. It's their unique piece of ground. And whatever I do to find the most interesting thing about the fruit from their piece of ground is almost for the other wines, right? For all the reasons I've been explaining, it's going to be different. And it's going to reflect their spot. And if Going forward, they feel confident enough to start making suggestions about which interpretations they like even more than others, then, then we can do that together too. And uh, I guess going forward, I'd rather work with, I'd rather really work in depth with a relatively small number of people than just take on anything as it comes um, and, and have kind of a, a a group of projects that I can still wrap my entire head around mm -hmm. and, and really try to stand behind every one of them. 
Tell me about, uh, you, we, we touched on that kind of throughout the interview, that kind of reflecting a place. Uh, tell me about finding the character of a place, how you go about it uh, for places, especially as you're, as you're uh, less familiar with a vineyard, as you're just the first time you're in a vineyard, the first couple of years you're in a vineyard. How do you look to, to find that best representation? Occasionally it's clear what your job is. You know, I've, some of the vineyards I've worked with are so inherently fruit driven and opulent um, that you just know this is never not gonna be a fruit driven opulent wine. So maybe I just wanna see how to interpret that. Now I don't necessarily have to make it more opulent. My notion that I follow the grapes where they wanna go doesn't mean I have to follow them off a cliff. But, um, but how to make sure that that wine is, is gonna be balanced as well. Um, don't take it right off clip, but balance it out. If I, you know, we've worked with fruit, uh, I've worked with fruit before that was very clearly substantially tannic. And again, I'm not gonna follow that off a cliff. I'm not gonna say, well, let's make it more tannic, but I, I will try to look for ways to rein it in. And, and look for the way that works the best. And by works the best, it has to still taste like that vineyard, right? If I change it fundamentally, wholeheartedly to something different, then that didn't really work. That, you know, that wasn't, what it, that wasn't my goal. But look for a way where I can say, yeah, this tastes like that wine, that wine that had that thing we didn't love about it, and yet somehow it doesn't have that thing. And so, like, like we finally found the nugget in there. And, or, but other times it is enhancing. Some, some vineyards are perfectly balanced and just have this one particular and you're wondering, hey, can I sort of bring that out? Can I highlight that? And that can be as simple and straightforward as barrel choices. It can be as simple as straightforward as whether or not to do a winemaking technique, like you know we've talked about things like whole cluster or whatever, um, uh, or extended maceration. But uh, um, it can also be something in the vineyard. You know, it can also be something. You know, if, would we get a little different flavor if we did something a little bit different in the vineyard? Um, but you're. You're not trying to, I can't stress this enough, you're not trying to change the vineyard. You're just trying to say, what, what's coming out of this vineyard that we really admire? And how do we focus on that, maybe expand on it, or maybe just, just dial that in and make this special for what it is? So earlier I asked about the, the biggest changes you'd seen at Adelsheim during your time there, and, and, you, and, you, and you gave a good answer, and I, and I want to kind of expand it. You, you touched on this a little bit already, but I'm, I want to talk more about the industry in general, what the, what the biggest changes have been in Oregon since 2001. Uh, what, what are the biggest changes now versus when you look back? Um, I think that I'm going to kind of answer this projecting forward, not just now. I think for the industry, one of the biggest changes is that when I came here, um, I think Oregon was just really getting, had, had just started really getting its legs under itself in terms of, not in terms of winemaking, but in terms of its relationship to the outside world. People were starting to really pick up on this. It wasn't just the occasional mention in a magazine that was starting to become the annual Oregon issue or whatever. And 
you were starting to go to places that actually knew how to pronounce Willamette in Oregon. And a lot of that was because of the industry itself. I think uh, Oregon Pinot Camp, for example, was started for the industry um, just a couple years before I got here. I'm certainly not taking credit for any of this, but my, my arrival was, was coincidental uh, at fairly early in the process of that really gelling. Um, IPNC, Oregon Pinot Camp, these things were really starting to make a difference in how we were perceived. In those days, we were definitely still sort of the underdog region. And I think we stayed that way as our success grew. And what I see is maybe in the last, sometime in the last 10 years, I'd hate to pinpoint the year, uh, but at some point we grew out of, an under, out of our underdog status. And now we're, we're damn near leading the pack, at least when it comes to cool climate wines. We're, 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 we might be the big dog now. And um, I think that's gonna be our next challenge is how do we behave as the big dog? How do we behave as the front runner? Um, can, we, can we keep a winning streak going? And it's exciting. I mean, right now we still show more growth than other wine regions, um, substantially so. And I thought we were already a big success three, four years ago. We've been growing at a great clip ever since then, collectively. Um, and can we keep doing that? Can we exist as a front runner and, and, and uh, make sure that, that we're still relevant? Um, I think that one way to keep doing that is to make darn sure that we do not cave on, on trying to make these wines as great as they can be, trying to discover even more in depth what's great about these different vineyards in the region. And, um, and for me, this is a time to stick to our guns about that, not a time to water the message down by saying, guess what else we do, you know, and get, let's try this and that, and, you know. I think that uh, the real great older wine regions of the world have stuck to what they do best. And, and I, I think there's still an endless number of possibilities as to what we can show the world with, even by sticking to what we do best. I don't think you're ever going to confuse, um, you know, once you really understand the wines, that you're really going to confuse a wine made from the Eola Amity Hills from a wine made from the Chehalem Mountains, at least, you know, not very often. And so there's still all this stuff to learn, both from the consumer standpoint or distributor, sommelier, whatever standpoint, but also from the wine, the wineries and winemakers. And, uh, as I said earlier, it's not, it's not boring yet. <laughs> so let's make sure, it, it, let's make sure we, we resist thinking of it as, as getting old hat, because it's not. What do you see as you look ahead then? What is the industry going to look like a decade from now? Um, hopefully, we learn to, we accept our success without insisting it morph into some new layer of success. I think that's my, as I was saying, as I've been saying, that's my biggest fear, mm -hmm. is that we make some dumb decisions because we insist that we now impress people in a whole new way. Um, 
so yeah, how to how to accept our success in a way that sticks to the great wines that were that got us here. You talked about the, the growth and, the, and and every time you think it's gonna stop growing, it grows some more. Do you see that growth continuing? Do you see the number of wineries, number of vineyards to continue, to continue continuing to grow in Oregon? I've studied too much math to believe that it can do the exact percentage growth every, you know, forever, right? At some point, at some point it's crazy uh, to think that. But um, it'll level off, there's no question. And that's when we'll really be challenged with this notion of how do we feel about it that it leveled off, right? How do, we, uh, how do we get to that point and still declare victory? You know, still say that this is, this is still killer, this is still awesome. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe we'll find different ways to express ourselves, but hopefully within, you know, ho hopefully we'll, we'll still make the kind of great, uh, I haven't used this word yet in this, uh, interview, but I will now, terroir-driven, you know, wines that really express this place and, um, and stick to our guns on that. Someone, obviously you've, you've mentored a lot of people through the industry, you've, you've brought a lot of people, you've hired a lot of people in the industry. If someone were to come to you and ask for your words of wisdom on joining the Oregon wine industry, what would you tell them? Well, I think, you know, it's a, it's a big tent, so there's room. There's, <laughs> there, there's plenty of room. And, you know, I would say to think about what kind of wines they like, think about what kinds they want to make, um, think about where they see themselves in five, 10, 20 years, and what they should be doing in the industry is dependent on their answers to those. You know, are you, are you the kind of person that wants to go cultivate your own little piece of ground and, and you know, do, do your own thing? Are you the kind of person who wants to work with as many different vineyards as possible? Are you, you know, what do you, I think there's a, this industry is now successful enough and diverse enough that there's a lot of different answers to that. I don't think there's just one personality that'll thrive here. And I don't think there's just one answer to what you want to do that will make me recommend it to you. But there's room for, there's more for more. There's no question. We're successful because of how many people have come here and succeeded, not in spite of. All right, last question for you. We're gonna get a little philosophical. Uh, what is wine's role in society? Um, I'm going to say something a little unusual, and that is that I don't think wine has to have a role in society. Um, and the reason I'm saying that is because I don't come from, I didn't grow up thinking that wine had a role at our table. I didn't grow up thinking that wine was important for our culture. Um, and that's just because of where I grew up. The family I grew up in and the region I grew up in wasn't necessarily attuned to that. And, um, you know, that we didn't happen to be into it doesn't mean, I don't feel like we needed to be. So in my mind, I don't think that people have to care what we're doing. I'm honored when they do care what we're doing. And I hope that 
we always remember as an industry to be honored that people care what we're doing. Not to presume that they owe it to us because we play such a key role in anything. You know, that doesn't mean I don't believe that life is better when, you know, with a good bottle of wine, right? In a lot of ways. And whether you're a, you know, diplomat or, or just have friends over, um, it absolutely is a good part of the evening. And, uh, uh, but let's not get so full of ourselves that we think we're doing some sort of important key national function. You know, uh, we're, we're just trying to make people's life better and make great wine in the process. And uh, um, that's, you know, so is wine a part of culture? Yes, but it's not the necessary part of culture. I'm not quite Thomas Jefferson on that one. <laughs> With all the questions that I have for you, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover today that we should have covered? I don't know. I think we've been going for about two hours. So <laughs> <laughs> if there's something we didn't cover, shame on me. Um, the uh, No, I think we're good. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.